everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast from Fulcrum Strategies. I'm Matthew Handley, and with me is the president and CEO of our organization, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you, sir? I am good. Thank you. This week, uh, we were originally going to be talking about uh, some more uh, drugs and, and stuff like that, as we had pitched at the end of last week's program. But we had some breaking news late last week, and that has had us push back that discussion till next week. And instead, today we're talking about the ruling in the third Texas Medical Association case uh, on the No Surprises Act. And uh, this, Ron, we have been waiting on this for a while. Our clients have been waiting on this for a while. Um, and so you, before we dive into the ruling, let's step back and remind everyone what was in the TMA3 case. Yeah, well, like so, let me step back a little bit further and talk just a little sure. bit about set the stage on the No Surprises Act. Um, so, if if you know you're listening to this and you're a hospital-based physician, a radiologist, anesthesiologist, or you're a doctor, this is something that you're intimately familiar with. Um, but if you're not a hospital-based physician, I think there's an important reason to listen to this, as well as if you're not even in healthcare. The No Surprises Act was really the first time that the government came in and said, we are going to set a process that will set the maximum amount that a person can, in essence, collect for the fruits of their labor. Um, it's really sort of a fundamental change to what happens to be, in most cases, free market economies, where I can sell my services for whatever somebody's willing to pay for them. Um, and it did that by basically saying for these physicians, hospital-based physicians, if they're working at an in-network hospital and they see a patient who they're not contracted with that patient's insurance company, in other words, they haven't already agreed upon what they're going to be paid for those services, that it set about a process that limits their ability to charge that patient sort of their full retail. Um, and it does it through this whole process of a dispute resolution process, et cetera. But it's binding. You know, you can't just say, well, I don't want to do this. I'm going to charge the patient what I want to. That's really something we've never seen before. And while I don't think it's likely to spread into a lot of other areas, it does beg the question, um, God, why couldn't they do this to college professors or air traffic controllers or pilots or teachers or whatever profession there is? where they basically say, look, we're going to set a, a maximum amount that you're going to be able to collect for your services. So that's why if you're, even if you're not in healthcare, this is sort of an interesting thing. Um, so now with that in place, here's what was in what they call TMA3. TMA3 had to do with the way that these um, payments are calculated and specifically something that's called the QPA, the Qualifying Payment Amount. Um, and there was a dispute between the Texas Medical Association representing physicians all over the country and some guidance that was put out by CMS on how that QPA was going to be calculated by the payers. Basically, TMA or the Texas Medical Association sued the federal government saying, you put out guidance that is in conflict with the actual language of the law. And we're asking the courts to throw out that guidance. And that's what was involved with TMA3. And it's huge because that QPA or that qualifying payment amount really sets the standard for how much ER docs or anesthesiologists or radiologists are going to be paid in this scenario. 
what was it the the Texas Medical Association and the physicians that they represented take issue with in this law? Or, or what is it that the federal government did that, that caused them to, to file lawsuits? Yeah, so the federal government back in July over a year ago issued guidance that basically gave a huge amount of latitude to the insurance companies on how to create or calculate this QPA. The law prescribes that the QPA is supposed to be the median contracted rate, meaning your middle contract, that was in place for a given market. So you can't compare Miami to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You have to be in that market. Um, that was in place on January 1, 2019, inflated to today's dollars. Now, the guidance from CMS said, well, you can use any contract. It doesn't have to be comparing a radiology group to a radiology group. And you can use it from multiple locations, and you can use it for people who have never actually provided that service. And they get this massive latitude, if you will. And the insurance companies took advantage of that and created the created QPAs or calculated QPAs that were advantageous to them and very low. And so what Texas Medical Association and the physicians they represent sued about was they said, look, that's not what the law says. The law is very specific around a number of factors, and I can go into the, to the factors they were suing on, but the law is very specific. And basically they were suing to say, CMS can't change the law. You can't just say, well, we don't like it, we're gonna interpret it differently, especially when the law is very prescriptive. And so they were suing to get that ruling or that guidance, if you will, um, vacated. And the Texas Medical Association had several previous lawsuits about other rulings from the from CMS. And they all came in front of this judge, Judge Jeremy Kernodal, um, and, and as well as a fourth lawsuit that he he ruled on earlier than the third one. Um, what does this mean going forward? Are we going to see an immediate change? Because I know after TMA4, you saw a suspension of the IDR process by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Are we going to see that again here? What, what sort of enforcement do you think we're going to start seeing and, and how soon are we going to start seeing that? Yeah, so today we actually saw a new suspension of the IDR process, okay. which is logical. Because um, basically what Judge Canodal did was he agreed with the plaintiffs and he vacated the July of last year guidance. So it no longer exists. But that means there's a little bit of a vacuum, which means there needs to be new guidance. Um, and he's done this with other things. He did it with TMA1 and TMA2. Um, and so anytime you sort of create a vacuum by erasing something that was put out before, you got to give CMS and the federal government time to replace it with correct guidance. Mm -hmm. So they paused things and said, hey, you know, let's let CMS come out with new guidance. And that came out today that there's going to be another pause. Um, now, what we don't know is, is CMS going to come out with new guidance that is correct? And accurate and complies with the law. The reason why I say we don't know that is there's been the first two lawsuits, TMA1 and TMA2, which were basically over this over the same issue, not this issue, but a different issue, where Judge Carnotal and TMA1 vacated guidance, and basically CMS came out with new guidance that was exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And Judge Carnotal had to, in the second ruling, vacate that guidance and sort of say, look, you know, do it right. So we don't know when CMS is going to come out with new guidance. We don't know, we hope, that they'll do it right this time and not force another lawsuit like that happened with TMA2. And then we don't know what kind of enforcement's going to happen to make the payers, you know, do this correctly. So, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, there's a lawful lot of stuff to go on. It, it sort of reminds me where we're at today of 
there's a, a famous, and I might get it wrong, there's a famous Winston Churchill comment at the end of the Battle of Britain where he said, this is not the end, this is not even the beginning of the end, but this may be the end of the beginning. Um, so I don't know as it's quite that dire, but this isn't the end, okay? Um, we got a lot to go here, but it's a great ruling for physicians. Um, it hopefully establishes us getting on the right path. I want to talk about outcomes more in a minute and, and what might happen because of this. But first, there was one thing uh, that the that Judge Colonel did not rule in favor of the Texas Medical Association. Tell me about that. Yeah, so there were basically two parts to TMA3. One was this, how the QPA is being calculated. And Judge Cronodal agreed with the TMA, the plaintiffs, on every single point that they put forward on the QPA calculation. The other part was a second piece, which is sort of a disclosure piece, that TMA was saying, you know, the insurers must disclose how the QPA calculations are being done, what's involved in them, et cetera. So they were looking for some transparency there. And basically, Judge Cronulla did not, did not agree with them on that um, and basically said his, his issue was that the law wasn't very prescriptive on that um, and that it didn't describe specific disclosure um, and, and, a, and items around that like it was prescriptive on the QPA thing. And because of that, CMS does have a fair amount of latitude on what they do there and that they found that CMS's interpretation was completely reasonable. So it wasn't like he was agreeing that, hey, this is wonderful that it's, there, you know, that there's not full transparency here. He was basically saying, as a judge, I can't overrule CMS on this because it was a gray area in the law. It wasn't prescriptive. And that's their job mm-hmm. is to fill in the blank, so to speak. I can rule against them on the first part of it because their job isn't to change the law. And the law was very prescriptive on the first part. So, you know, I tell people we didn't hit a home run. We hit a, you know, maybe a triple um, because the first part is more important than the second part. Now, that does bring up the question of how will it be enforced if if there isn't this transparency? Do you have any idea of how that might take place? Well, you know, there are a lot of people who think there's going to have to be another lawsuit that, that they're at least skeptical that the insurance carriers will suddenly find religion and say, okay, you know, fine, here, we'll do it all clean and we'll do it right. Um, We know that the federal government is either not very interested in or not equipped to do a lot of audits um, to make sure it's done right. So in some respects, it's going to be a little bit like, you know, passing the tax law and having the IRS say, well, really, we really don't like to do audits. So we're going to kind of hope that everybody is on their best behavior and, and does their taxes correctly. And that environment, it's unlikely that mm-hmm. people are going to be completely honest about their taxes. I mean, it's the threat of audit that gets you there. So if CMS is not auditing and if they're if the carriers are not being completely clean on this, in all likelihood, there's going to have to be another lawsuit. And that either could be a lawsuit potentially against CMS, a TMA-5, saying it's your job to enforce this and you're not doing it, or, and this would probably be more successful, a lawsuit against the various carriers and turn it into a class action suit to say mm-hmm. there's now a very clear guidance in federal law and you're not adhering to it, and that failure to follow the law is damaging these these physicians, and therefore here's a class action suit. Right. Um, similar to what's happened in California with the suit with Cigna and its denial practices 
um, and other suits that are been are being pursued with carriers. Um, that would probably get their attention um, fairly quickly. So we think there's a decent chance there's going to have to be more litigation, which is why I said, you know, this isn't the end. You know, yeah, it's a good step, but it's not going to suddenly get better tomorrow. Well, speaking about the the hospital transparency law, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra told, uh, I don't remember which media outlet it was, but it was in an interview, he told a media outlet that they are relying on patients to report violations of the hospital transparency law. Do you think we'll see something kind of like that where they're going to make you know, physicians or um, maybe even the IDR officials have to be the ones to report when the QPAs are wrong? Well, and, and, and that will be okay because the provider community is well poised to file complaints. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that they're asking for is what's the complaint mechanism? Right. And how do we file those complaints? So, it, you know, if CMS would follow up on those complaints and, and truly audit them, that would be fine. Um, now, the problem is they're likely to get, you know, massive number of complaints almost immediately. Yeah. You know, because people are ready to do this. It's, it's important. Our concern is that they won't even follow up on the complaints. Yeah. And then, you know, then it's going to require some litigation. Right. So. Uh, we'll talk about outcomes for a few minutes, assuming that everything, you know, everything turns up rosy. And as you said, the, the payers have a come to religion moment and decide to start doing everything correctly. What can physicians who have been waiting for a while to negotiate contracts say, um, how long or do you think, how quickly do you think the payers will start to move to get you know, start moving those negotiations through and getting more people in network so that things don't have to go through the IDR process. You know, I'm actually starting to see this happen already. Mm -hmm. I think the payers, um, first of all, I think they knew going into this that it was a a losing argument that the federal government had. Um, You know, the the reading the ruling from Judge Kernodal, it's not even, you know, slightly in the favor of the plaintiffs he basically says the plaintiffs are right on all of this and sort of you know what made you think you you know you could do what you did Mm -hmm. and i think the payers knew that was coming and i think they know even though there's some more feet dragging that they can do that eventually they're going to lose this the law was very um correctly in my opinion built to have this kind of um you know this kind of balance to it um so because of that, I'm starting to see carriers now autom- already get a little bit more reasonable on their negotiations. Um, and I think that will happen more and more, which is good because we've got a shortage of anesthesia and ER and radiology providers across the country. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see it really impact people. I mean, I'm starting to see hospitals where, you know, they can't fully staff with all the anesthesiologists they need. they got to shut down some ORs. Um you know, what happens when a hospital can't fully staff with emergency medicine physicians? Right. Um, and just like pilots, you know, you don't want a pilot who's flown way too many hours getting in the cockpit of a plane. I don't want an ER doc who's pulled too many shifts because they don't have enough, you know, to do the staffing to be the one seeing me when I roll in. Mm-hmm. So, right. um, you know, we're going to start to see the carriers get more reasonable in these negotiations. And that's a good thing. Um, what about uh, completely in the verse? What, what could go wrong? Um, what could go wrong is um, if the payers completely ignore this and CMS, um, you know, doesn't enforce it, 
and you know we lose an enforcement case or it takes us two years to get through um you know the process of finally getting this done right i mean we don't have you know the time to let this you know sit in the court systems for the next couple of years um, it's already been over a year since this guidance was issued in july of last mm-hmm. year um you know there that will harm some of these medical groups and it'll be tough to to sort of fix that damage the other thing that could go wrong and the thing that probably concerns me a little bit more than that is somehow this getting back to congress and congress being convinced to change the law let's say to something that is a prescriptive rate you know let's say if congress changed the law and said fine rather than having this whole dispute resolution process i'm just going to say that if you're out of network you get paid no more than x percent of medicare because in some of those situations that could be incredibly detrimental um, and could cause you know doctors whether it be radiology anesthesia or er pull to pull out of certain hospitals mm-hmm. um, and you know without doctors to to provide the medical care at those hospitals you know without doctors hospitals are expensive hotels with bad food yeah um, and, and in North Carolina, I mean, and not because of this issue, but because of some financial strains, um, we've already had two rural hospitals close in the state, just yeah. close. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start closing ORs or not being able to well staff your ER, that just adds insult to injury and we're going to see more hospital failures. Yeah. Yeah, that that's that's exactly right. And especially if you do these uh the one you know, say take one fifty of Medicare, for example, as a prescriptive rate, that leaves absolutely no incentive for the payers to keep anyone above that in network. And they you start to see I would assume some mass terminations at that point, um, assuming they'd be allowed to terminate given on the, the contract terms. Well, you'd see mass terminations. You'd I think you'd see um, early retirement of some physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, a perfect example. Okay, right now, um, almost sixty percent of all practicing anesthesiologists are over the age of fifty-five. Mm-hmm. That means they're within shooting match of of you know retirement. So let's say you have this prescriptive rate, and these people who are 56, 58, 60, 62 say that's it, I'm done, and they all retire. Yeah. We can't replace them right away. Yep. You know, and that could create a really serious shortage. And what if the group that they retire from said, hey, well, we're down, you know, this many doctors. Um, we're going to keep servicing the main hospital in the big city we work in. But that rural hospital that has the bad patient mix, um, we're just going to back out of that. Yeah. Now that county just lost their ability to have surgeries performed. Um, right. So a lot of, you know, there could be a lot of downstream harmful side effects of that. The other thing that, I, you know, it sort of harkens to when, you know, when you start talking about the government setting a rate, you know, like 150 of Medicare for all this, um, it reminds me, and there's an old, this is back in the old, you know, Soviet Union days, and, and there's an old joke of where the workers say, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. Um, well, you start having prescriptive rates that are too low and people just will stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happens? Early on in the NSA process, we saw some payers like Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina start sending um, threats to people that they say were were highly being highly reimbursed for the services uh, and threatening to terminate them. Are we still seeing payers act that way right now with the No Surprises Act? Um, not since the TMA lawsuits got really up and running. So okay. before the law even got passed, we watched United Healthcare terminate 
large numbers of physicians. I think there were, uh, the ASA did a survey, and granted it's a it's self-reported survey, but something like over 40% of all the respondents said they were either terminated by United or had a threat, to, threat of termination. Hmm. And then we saw Blue Cross North Carolina send some letters and other plans and states did the same thing. Now, that pretty much stopped um, as these lawsuits got in place. And I think it's because the payers started to realize, well, that isn't going to work. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be necessarily more advantageous to us to get rid of these people out of our network because we could lose in the in the dispute resolution. And to some degree, and you know, I, I sometimes have a hard time, and maybe it's just I don't find many examples of, you know, praising Congress. But hey, you know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut now and then. Mm-hmm. From that perspective, this law was really pretty well constructed to, if implemented correctly, which hasn't been done yet to actually incentivize more contracts than incentivizing terminations. And that's the reason why we need to get this right is because then it will really set about a mechanism to try to create more contracts between provider and payer, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the providers that are still um, greatly concerned about the the status of the No Surprises Act and what their practice might look like going forward, what would you say to them? Um, I would say, first of all, be sure you're up to speed on the latest um, developments of it, et cetera. All of the relative societies, you know, whether it's you know, ASA or ASAP or EDPMA or, you know, American College of Radiology, whatever, RBMA, all of those societies are well informed on this. You can talk to them. They will tell you what's going on. You know, keep up to speed with what's going on to it um, uh, and keep apprised of it because that, and those are great places of information. And we'll help uh, keep you apprised to it too here. Ron, we're just about out of time. Thanks for sitting down and talking to the No Surprises Act again today. I'm happy to do it. Thank you. Subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast from Fulcrum Strategies wherever you listen to podcasts. And we will keep you updated on stories like this. Plus, next week we're continuing our drug discussion. So subscribe now and never miss an episode.